to another episode of Show Up Chicago, a podcast that is celebrating the work everyday citizens and organizations are doing to make our city better. I'm so sorry. I almost burped in the middle of that. But uh, we're going to be telling you about events and issues and groups in Chicago that you can get involved with and start making a difference today. Will you show up? This week, we're so excited to share with you our interview with Angelica D'Souza, an LGBTQ witness and advocate within the Cook County systems. Yes. Angelica was awesome. Uh, she it works very closely with Kim Fox. Well, not close. She works in the same department as mm-hmm. Kim Fox. Um, her job basically, as a brief overview, is basically to go to courtrooms to support um, uh, victims of LGBTQ plus crimes, uh, victims, uh, witness advocates. So she sits there and she really sort of helps them through the whole court process, really make sure that they are well taken care of and attended to, and that she can provide them with the resources she, uh, that they may need in order to get their lives back on track. Yeah, absolutely. Talking to Angie was really, really interesting because it showed me a whole world of just kind of issues that I hadn't even been considering, not in terms of, you know, crimes against LGBTQ victims, because obviously those are plenty and uh, unacceptable, but she has the answers to problems in terms of victims. You know, how am I going to get to the courthouse? You know, she helps them find a car and find a ride. She gets them to the courthouse on time. Uh, How am I going to relive this trial? She sits with them. She helps them go over those stories. She tries to find them counselors and therapists and you know uh, she answers their phone calls and their letters and their and their concerns and she is basic she helps them carry the weight of what they're going through I think that was something that she said that just stuck with me so deeply is that she just helps them carry the weight of what she bears witness to what they went through and validates it yeah which is uh it, it was such a powerful way to phrase that that she just bears witness to what happened to them. And how how fundamental that can be for a victim. Exactly. And, you know, she's very honest and candid in that it does take a toll on your sort of mental wellness, mental well-being. And, you know, she's really had to fight in her time with this uh, job and making sure that she does take care of herself. Because when you're so much, when you spend so much time giving of yourself to other people, it's easy to feel less like you have pieces of yourself so she's really found ways to um maintain that balance which I think is something that a lot of us are really struggling to do in this time is really sort of giving ourselves to the causes and to the groups and organizations that we really want to support and we really want to be there and be active in as much uh is in as many ways as possible but you know, you also have to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and that you're doing what's right for you because if you're not, then you're going to burn out and you're going to just lose momentum and nothing will really ever get done. So there's a balancing act, and she does sort of talk about that, um, which was really nice to hear because I think a lot of people need to feel that and know that it's okay to, like, take care of yourself and to take a break and to log off the Internet and to turn off the TV or, you know, go get a massage. Like, Groupon has some great deals, I'm telling you, <laughs> from experience. Um, self-care, yeah, self-care in the Trump era is, I think, something we uh, – it's kind of an underscored mm-hmm. importance. It's exactly. not like any of us have health care. Exactly. So. And so, um, yeah, Angie really talks about that. And, you know, the work that she's doing is sort of the things that she's seeing. And she was very candid even in talking about the things that she wishes were different in her job or the things that she wished she had more control over just within the uh, the state, Cook County State's Attorney's Office and just sort of how everything flows and communication and how everything is sort of relying upon everything else. Um, and even the resources, yeah. you know, the lack of resources, maybe they have plenty or not even plenty. They ha- they have resources now, but exactly. they need more. Yeah. And so she talks about all of that jazz and she really just sort of allowed us to really explore her and what she does and why she does it. And we think that you will really enjoy this interview. We loved Angie. Oh, like, my God. A lot. I want to watch just <laughs> TV shows with her and just spend lots of quality time with her she's so cool and uh she's doing uh some big things so she's also the only one in the whole cook county that has her job this woman this unbelievable woman she is the only lgbtq witness advocate in all of cook county exactly she if there is 
um, you know, if there's a victim of any of these crimes, Angie is, you know, walking hand in hand with them through the whole process. And I don't think that can be um, overstated enough just how important she is in the lives of some of our city's most vulnerable peoples. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we need more. We need to. Exactly. And uh, in case you were wondering, there are about five million. 238,000 people within Cook County. So any of those people, if they become a victim, uh, a, uh, a witness or a, a victim of some sort of crime or hate crime, um, it is Angie's job to be there for them and to advocate for them and to make sure that they get the care that they need. So she is doing a lot of work. She's doing a lot. And we we love her for it. We thank her for it. Um Absolutely. If you guys have any questions about her, if you know of anyone who would be who need her services, please let us know. We can absolutely get you in contact with her, with her office and really help people start to heal. Exactly. First, let's get over. Let's cover some news in Chicago and Illinois because we've been gone for a little bit. So there's a lot to talk about, folks. Hope you missed us. (laughs) The big news that has happened um, in the last just couple days people this past weekend um minutes right uh kkk white supremacist white people are mad rally in charlottesville (laughs) virginia where um so there was one rally friday night was the pre it was the rally to the rally like the pre-rally party to call it a rally Um, of angry virgins yes a bunch of uh young uh white angry men donning tiki torches that they probably did purchase from a home goods store um, I feel like a party supply store. Like these were yes, straight up mos- was mosquito city. torches, y'all. They no, had 100%. citronella candles. Yeah, like it was like the smallest little flame. I was like, what are you actually doing right now? What are you evoking? <laughs> uh, they walked around the University of Virginia campus shouting a bunch of uh, racist, white supremacist, alt-right sort of uh, very scary phrases. Including, "We, you will not replace us. Yes. That was the one that really was just... That's the... the what? White men are afraid. Yeah. They are scared. Their fragility is just yeah, laughable. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard out here to be a white dude, apparently. Um, but Not yeah. that we know. So they had um, a march uh, the night prior, and there's going to be a very, very large rally planned um, in Charlottesville, Virginia, to protest the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue, Um in charlottesville because obviously the confederacy first off they lost so like that's one just like let's that's just that, that one point let's just take it back to the fact that these yeah. are some treasonous ass people they tried to secede from our freaking country and we reward them with statues and, and we flags, protect them and they're like they were standing up for us for what, dude? You're not. You're not a Confederate. You are an American. You like, are part of the freaking union. You lost. Like actually, you didn't lose. Your ancestors <sighs> lost. Confederate some. statues are the largest participation trophy. Confusing. Yes, actually, that's a very good point. It's just like congratulations, you lost. Here's your participation trophy, and they call us the freaking snowflakes. It, it just it it, it it doesn't make any sense because. You lost. What are you mad about? It's a statue of a man you did not know. Who cares? You probably have not gone to the statue. It's not like you go and you like rub its nose and you're like, oh, Robert's going to give us the the luck of the white people. No, you just like it's just a statue you've probably never paid attention to. But now they're going to take it down because they're like, oh, wait, you know, this is actually really offensive. So maybe we shouldn't do, you know, because he advocating for enslaving an entire race of people. Exactly. Exactly. There it is. So. Yeah, it's a very confusing concept in general. Um, But yeah, so there's supposed to be a larger rally um, to protest that. The first rally um, that took place on the University of Virginia campus had a lot of violence, even though people don't want to talk about it. There were a lot of fights and a lot of... um, There was anti-protesters who were trying to sort of combat the negative things that the uh, alt-right protesters were trying to say. Um, And then the protest that took place on Saturday got shut down Mm -hmm. very quickly. Um, Yes, this is an ever-developing story, so I'm sure we will constantly be hearing more and more about it. Um, Our president tweeted something about it recently. Which is also still fairly unacceptable that we're saying our president tweeted something about a racist violent rally where i 
truly just watched a young woman get punched in the face by a grown-ass man and groups of protesters holding Confederate flags and bats beat a young black man. Uh, welcome to 2017 in America. Yes. Our president tweeted in response, only after his wife did. I mean, that's not surprising. <laughs> yeah. His wife hates him. Yeah. Um, but Donald J. Trump tweeted on Saturday, August 12th, <laughs> we all must be united and condemn all that hate stands for. There is no place for this kind of violence in America. Let's come together as one. Which is really interesting because I guarantee you every single person who was at that rally voted for him. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that his consistent um, the push about how people should be able to say what they want. There shouldn't be a lot of safe spaces. And Political correctness. Yes, and all of that, that I'm pretty sure that that probably also incited these people to feel more comfortable being as racist or as bigoted as they could be because our president said, c'est la vie. And it's almost as if we said this would happen. You know, it's almost mm. like we screamed yeah, at know? any any chance we could before this election that if he wins, we're going to embolden the KKK and racists. Yep. And now we have. There were uh, – the fear that people in our country are now living with because of this man is just unacceptable. I don't even have words, you guys. It's yeah. bad, and it's – it's just consistently getting worse. And I also just want to say that I know that he tweets a lot of terrible nonsense and a lot of terrible things that we should be, you know, fighting against. But I also want you to pay attention to when he decides to tweet something and what is actually happening in our government. Because nine times out of ten, he tweeted something and it's a distraction to keep you away from something else that he's trying to get to actually pass. So the trans ban was an example terrible absolutely should not happen you shouldn't have said it we need to stand up for trans people of all creeds but at the same time he tweeted this thing that had no actual legal effect as of yet he hadn't even talked to the pentagon exactly while the health care bill or repeal was trying to actually get passed so it was a distraction so that there would be less focus on the things that were happening in the senate and more focus on this thing that he tweeted that actually didn't do anything as of yet so just uh keep your eyes open because uh he's uh he's peeping you okay he is is a businessman he is annoying and he is ignorant and he is uh, he's he's a wily piece of shit underqualified yes to say there it is uh, so just uh, stay yeah. woke, people. Absolutely. And I'm just going to like shout out for every single white person who is listening to this, witnessing what's been going on. It is in every single one of our hands to reach out to the people that we know in real life on social media who say things like, no, we should remember the Confederacy. Anything like that. It is on us every single step of the way. To call that person out, to call them on the phone, to send them a text, to meet them in person, to send them a Facebook message and say, here's why you're wrong. That is the only way that anyone is ever going to learn to grow, to change their mind. They have to be confronted. They have to be confronted every single time. They say anything ignorant. They say anything offensive and rude. Maybe they don't know what they're saying, but you know what? A lot of the time they absolutely do know what they're saying and we need to call them out on this. It is not up to black people to do this anymore this is 100 percent. this is our fuck up this is this is absolutely our mess to clean up and we have to do it there is absolutely no more hemming and hawing if you see something say something that's not a terrorist slogan that is an everything slogan um it's it's on us this is our job let me know if you need help uh taking someone down in this way i am there for you let me know if you need help understanding how to confront someone like this it's it's difficult and it's scary but you know what I just yelled at five people on Facebook before I went out to record this and here I am still standing and maybe they won't like me anymore but I bet they'll understand that what they said was wrong and that's kind of that's the end of that (laughs) exactly so all right that writes up our news cycle. That writes up our news cycle, guys. It's a crazy world, but uh, we love you for listening to us. Exactly. And now we're going to get on with the interview. We are. Let's get on with the interview. I want you to know that I'm grown, that it's fun, that you know love is time. Lay it down from the start. That's a good question. And usually when it happens, I do an awkward chuckle because um, it takes me a second. Um, 
So essentially, I consider myself an advocate. Like, sort of, period. End of, end of sentence. Um, in, and I've sort of taken on a variety of different roles at this point in that. Um, but what I do currently is specific to um, advocacy for victims of crime. What sort of motivated you to kind of get into this kind of pathway of really fighting for people and standing up for others? And what is your uh, official job title? Yeah, so um, I guess I'll start with Taylor's question. Yeah. But, um, well, my mom always says that I had like an overinflated sense of justice, like even as a kid. Uh, so I don't know if that's what it is. Like it's just that's an innate thing that I don't know if that's just we're born with some kind of sort of need to fix things. I definitely think that who I am as a person boils down to like a need to fix problems. Um, and then like injustice just bothers me. Mm. Like on a very just basic level. Um, I think equity is sort of like this central or should be a central pillar of our sort of society and our relationships and everything. Um, and that sort of humanism and humanity should be at the core of everything that we do. And oftentimes it's not. And in most systems it's not. Um, and so that's the, that's like the core sort of, I guess, reason why I, I think got drawn into this work um but that but then going along with that I'm also the child of immigrants um of like an interracial marriage um of folks that have come from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds of language backgrounds um I'm first generation um I'm a queer person, a queer woman, um, and am not white. <laughs> so, like, all of those parts of my identity also, I think, like, I am just as affected by a lot of these things as the people that I'm fighting for. I'm, I'm, I'm part of that group or those groups. Um, and so on the one hand, it's this sort of idealistic, um, fighting for everybody, I think, justice component. Um, and then also, like, and for me as a person, like, I want to be treated equitably and fairly and have my humanity recognized by the people around me and the systems I interact with and just society as a whole. Like, that's also part of it. So that's, like, the very long-winded answer no, to your I question. No, I love that. Um, but my official title... Uh, right now is I'm the LGBTQ and hate crime victim witness specialist for the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. Ooh, That's damn. also a mouthful. Yeah. Big baller up in right? here. Right? Shock collar. Um, <laughs> and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but are you the only one in your position currently at the yes. county level? Yes. Is so, that always how it is? Yes, it is. Um the position was sort of created by the late, great Vernita Gray, um, who was just, who I, I'm sad to have never met her, um, and very fortunate to work with lots of people who did know her and know her well. Um, sort of this like bastion of the queer community um, who really just moved, like moved, advanced the cause so much on her own and was such a important part of the queer community um, in Chicago, and I would argue, like, sort of nationally, too. Um, I think she and her, her, well, her spouse were the first couple in Illinois to be married officially. Oh, wow. Um, like, she's, she's a huge deal, I think, <laughs> in the community, and she created, she just initiated the position, um, but it was only been one person. That's crazy. Yeah. For all of Cook County. For all of Cook County. Which is a, it's just a big county. It's a big county. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the state's attorney's office in Cook County is the second largest prosecutor's office in the country. Whoa. So what does that mean for, for your day-to-day? -day? So are you working with, like, like 
clients, like youth, just handling their cases, just working with them through interviews. So I have a, it's a weird sort of hybrid position. Um, I spend a great deal of my time like in court doing direct service um, with and, and my the people that I interact with like I couldn't pick a majority of sort of there's not a majority you know um, I the youngest my youngest client is five and my oldest is 82 Whoa. Um, and everything in between um, I have clients that identify all across the like the LGBTQ spectrum, both in sexual identity and in gender identity, um, across race, religion, um, ethnicity. Um, it, like there's, it runs the gambit, mm. um, which is somewhat unique even to the 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 work that my unit does. Um, like folks of color are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, both as victims and as um, perpetrators or as defendants, rather. Um, so a lot of my sort of colleagues, their caseloads are predominantly folks that are um, also of those groups, whereas with me it's a little different. Yeah. Could yeah. you sort of just sort of so everybody gets on the same page, can you explain a little bit about what it is exactly that you do yes. and how you go about doing that? Yeah, so um, I guess there's, I, I break it down in sort of like a quadrant. So on the one hand, I'm population specific. So I work with LGBTQ folks who have been, who are entering the criminal legal system as victims of a crime. And I also work with folks that are, have experienced or have been victimized like in, or have experienced bias motivated violence. Um, or some kind of hate incident. So that's like the one side of the who I, that's the who part. Okay. In terms of the what, it's, um, I do about 70% of my time is spent doing direct service um, advocacy. So it's everything from making sure that like when somebody's in court, that they are comfortable, that they're fed, that they're, I mean literally fed, <laughs> that they have transportation to and from court. Those basic sort of immediate things that we all need to feel okay mm -hmm. from that point all the way to making sure that folks have counseling referrals um, that they know what's going on they know what where their process is that they um, have a direct line to the prosecutor on their case um, that they have somebody who can sort of amplify their voice all that stuff um, that's about 70% of what I do. Mm -hmm. um, and I work with folks, I can, I have the ability to work with folks from like a time of an incident so I can help them through how to make a police report, how to navigate that process all the way through the, the final disposition of a criminal case. Um, and then about 30% of what I do is spent, um, I do community-based work. So I sit on committees that do lots of different things. I've um, I'm organi helping organize this really awesome hate crime summit, which is going to be on October 25th at UIC, and you can check out the link at yes. the Chicago Commission on Human Relations website. It's going to be awesome. Um, and for attorneys, there's CLEs, and for everyone else, there's CEUs and things like that. So check that out. Shameless plug. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that's what we're here look. for. Yeah. Um, and trainings, so I do like internal trainings, external trainings. It's that systems and institutional advocacy level work, mm -hmm. basically. Cool, and so I can imagine from hearing that that the work that you do requires a lot. Um, like obviously just in general, the, 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 the tasks that you have to do, but sort of like being emotionally and mentally there for the people that you are, you know, helping in all of these different capacities. How has that been for you since you started this job, sort of handling that aspect, like um, emotionally, of all the stuff that you have to sort of deal with? There are good days and there are bad days and there are like normal days, mm. if that makes sense. So um, before I did this, I did sort of sexual assault and domestic violence services. So that must sort of where my background lies already is in working with folks who've experienced trauma. 
um, not educationally, but professionally. <laughs> um, it's education in and of itself. Right, yeah, because I'm, I'm a history major and, <laughs> and French and Spanish literature, so literally nothing to do with anything that I do. <laughs> That's so um, interesting. Yeah, I just, I liked it. Yeah. And then didn't want to do it as, like, a job. Mm. So, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so I think on the one hand, like, you, if you aren't compassionate and you aren't an empathetic person, like, you're not good at this work. Mm. But if you don't know how to set boundaries with yourself and with others and then, like, respect those boundaries, then you're also not good at this work. What does that mean, sort of? What kind of boundaries do you have to set between yourself and sort of the clients that you work with? So it, it, that's sort of an ongoing, I think, conversation or, yeah. or dialogue. It's, it's an evolving thing with each person that you work yeah. with. Um, with some people, it just those, – those boundaries kind of emerge naturally. Like the, the roles sort of – you fall into them in an organic way, and, and you don't have to, I think, maybe work so hard for it. Um, like I have some clients where it just – it just kind of since day one it has worked and I'm sufficiently emotionally invested but also the roles are clear um with other folks you have to be much more I think one there are some cases that just get to you like there's gonna Mm -hmm. be cases there's because you see we, we see things that are really hard we do um, even the most seasoned veteran is going to have something that, like, just gets under their skin. For one of my colleagues, it's, like, baby murders. Oh. Like, she just can't. She can't. She just, those, they just, she can't do them. Um, which, like, makes sense. It's yeah. awful. Yeah. But for somebody else, it might be domestic violence. They just can't. You have a very, you have a really job hard. that really lends itself to triggers. Just yeah. of any yeah. kind from any of your experiences in life. You know, you're really seeing. Yes. You're picking these people up when things have just happened to them. Right. There, there's definitely, like, that immediate crisis phase. Um, I will say with things like felonies and things, that Im- you're, you're not getting them right at the, um, like, at the very onset mm-hmm. or the, the, the immediate occurrence, you know. You're getting them a little bit later. But it's still a lot of crisis intervention. So you're right. There's a lot of. Um, things that are potentially triggering something that I've had to work through myself with like my own history of trauma and things like that and how to manage it's 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 honestly like a lot of sort of psycho-emotional like work um, and care and like reflection I can't I can't speak enough to like how important it is to like do so much inward work that's where I think a lot of your boundaries your boundary setting comes from it's like reflecting inward what am I comfortable with what triggers me what can I what am I capable of and then being able to then like articulate it and also stick to to what you've decided is your boundary Mm. Um, that last part for me is the most difficult is respecting my own boundaries yeah it's hard yeah it's easy to get sort of wrapped up into what you're doing especially when you have to care so much about what this other person has been through right that yeah no I mean I understand yeah that you just, just from, you, I'm you not even doing your line of work and I understand how hard yeah. boundaries are so I can't <laughs> even <laughs> imagine <laughs> but it's like the difference between holding something like in yourself like in your body versus holding it like with that person like I always I I am not I would never call myself like a religious person um, but I did go to a Jesuit institution for university, and there's this, like, thing about accompaniment. Like, people need accompaniment. It's not the only thing they need. Like, folks also need, like, services and, like, housing and, like, <laughs> like legit, real, tangible things. But, like, having somebody, like, bear witness to, like, your trauma and your healing and, like, your process like, that in and of itself, like, is a healing thing. Um, but it's – bearing witness doesn't mean, like, taking it on. 
You're right. you're validating what happened to them. Right. And you're like helping them hold that weight as opposed to taking on the weight. Um but it's such a like it's 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 never something that you're like done figuring out how to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What have uh what have you learned about just the the Cook County, Cook County specifically and how they handle these kinds of crimes, these kinds of victims? So I think that like the criminal like justice system, I don't even call it the justice system because like I don't want to assume that, like I don't think that folks, a lot of folks get justice out of the system. The criminal legal system for me. Ooh, I like that. Um, yeah, like justice always comes, I think, in one way or another, just not often in that system. Um, it's not even just a Cook County thing. It's just like when you're interacting with these systems, it's like a dehumanizing thing. So when you're dealing with folks that are already marginalized and already facing this sort of like societal dehumanization, to then enter into a system or like be brought into a system through like no like cho- like no fault of their own or and very unwillingly to one that like kind of further dehumanizes you um like that is probably just like a the single greatest challenge i think for mm-hmm. the whole thing um I don't know if that answered your question. I think I just went on a whole other tangent about no, you, well, because <laughs> like, the work that you do doesn't like it works directly with the Cook County jails, essentially. You know, that's what mm-hmm. it's what a lot of it is. So I can only imagine what kind of reflection that does on what part of the system yeah. am I? When you see, yes. I mean, I'm sure you see in your line of work a lot of injustice in terms of just yeah, injustice, obviously. Well, it's but on both yeah. sides. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like. So in the criminal system, the victim is not a party on the case. The victim is a witness for the state. So like Mm. already right there, right? You're taking out the person who's experienced harm like to have say in what's happening. Part of what my job is is to like give give them that say back or at least as much as we can. Um, And on the other side, you're dealing with like sort of the the whole prison industrial complex and like mass incarceration and and like and and for all of the reforms that they've tried to do in jails or whatever and like there are some good things that the sheriff has put in place like the policies like I'm not going to totally knock all of that um but it's still jail and it's still the U.S. and it's still Cook County (laughs) yeah you know I just learned that a third of all incarcerated women in the world are in the United States. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Female imprisonment has gone up 700% since 1980. That's crazy. And most of those folks are moms. Yeah. Yeah. That was the literal next sentence that I read in it was that, and most of these people are mothers. Yeah. It only just became illegal in a state to shackle pregnant women. Mm -hmm. Like, chain up. I know. Like, that is some back alley, weird saloon level shit. Yeah. No, it's 100% just inhumane. I mean, that's like, like, these are fundamental human rights that folks, that people, like, as people, like, as, as human beings are entitled to because they are human beings that they're being denied. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I see just because of, like, the role that I am in is like folks that are trans or gender non-conforming who are defendants on cases. So like depending because there are so many different actors in the criminal justice system that are independent of each other. So you've got the state's attorney's office, you've got the the defense, you've got the clerk system, you've got the jail, you've got the judiciary. I mean, those are all independent actors ultimately. If let's say one of them has a good policy, that makes sense and that's affirming. They have no ability to like make everybody else follow that policy. So you could have one of those offices like that as policy call somebody by their by their name their their their, their name, use their proper pronouns, um, provide like like at least respectful and affirming um, interactions. But if nobody else does in that system, like is that real? It's 
Yeah. Then you're, it's that loan, you're not really fixing anything. At all. So well, why, I, that's interesting that that's not a connectivity, there's no connectivity throughout the different departments or areas of just basic procedure, because that doesn't even seem like a like complicated policy to have. Mm-hmm. It's just treat people how they want to be treated, like yeah. the age-old rule. Yeah. Yeah. But see, when you're housing somebody, like CPD, for example, has their general order that um, you can actually find, by the way, find all of their general order orders online. Um, so if anyone is curious about what CPD policy is on anything, mm-hmm. it is all on the internet and it is all accessible. So I would definitely encourage folks who are interested in anything to do with sort of police issues to check those out. Um, but there is a general order that concerns specifically like trans and gender nonconforming folks. It could be way better. Mm. Um, but you're talking about like where to house somebody and how do you make those decisions and then if and then but then there's the whole issue of well, if you're trans and you're in a district where there's just male and female lockup, then you have to go to central holding, which means you're being transferred potentially in, like on a different, a completely different end of the city than you're actually from. Oh wow! You're being like processed each step of the way, and then if you get let out, you're let out, let's say, in one spot, but you live on the opposite end of the city. Yeah. Like, there's so many other issues there. Um, and they just leave. Like, you, you're if good. If you're out, you're out. You don't have, that's that's it. You get, yeah. you leave with what you brought in. You have to figure out, you're out, you're out your way home at that point. Um, wow. So even, but even something as basic as like, like I can see the attempt at like fixing the problem still doesn't adequately address the issues it's still it's that sort of it becomes sort of separate but equal you know it's like protective custody um yeah but you're right there there should be a like if there i came into the system assuming that that things were uniform yeah you would think that that's just how the government works right but if like they don't talk to each other and they all have or different levels, or they, you know, like, then they don't, and then, like, DCFS's policies, mm-hmm. we work with DCFS and the juvenile system, their policies and our policies aren't necessarily the same. Wow. Right? So, yeah. um, necessarily. Um, some of them might be, Juvie uh, is not my <laughs> area of expertise, so I can't speak to the specifics, but, um, like, we don't have any say about what they do, and they have no say about what we do, for mm-hmm. example. And we have no way of compelling each other to do anything. And that's just... <laughs> Han had to yawn, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did have to yawn, but then it was also just so frustrating that we these resources exist. You know, mm-hmm. all of these facts exist. It's just the lack of transparency and connections between them. It's just... Yeah. Feels like it should be criminal. It's so fractured, and it's so difficult to connect dots. It it doesn't. As someone who doesn't come from like a law enforcement background or from, even from like a government perspective, like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me either, right? Yeah. Or like one thing I get a lot is someone. Who is, having issues interacting with, law like police and comes to us to try to get us to help fix it. Well, I can't make the police arrest somebody. Like, I can't ask, I, like, we, we can't, if, if we, we rely on the police to bring us the evidence to charge the, right? So if it, to charge a case, like, if they don't do that, we can't mm-hmm. make them. Um, and I once had a Vic be like, like, well, she was very upset um, and, I swear on here. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Like, fuck the police. Fuck the states. Fuck all y'all. Fuck all this. Like, and I was like, I totally, just like, no one's helping me. And it wasn't entirely untrue, nor was it entirely true. But um, I was like, and she was like, no one ever does anything. I make police reports. 
nothing ever happens. They never arrest him. Like, why is nobody doing anything? You know, so, and, and, and trying to explain to somebody how the office that's prosecuting basically can't do anything unless the police arrest the other person. Like, and she was like, but you're all the government. <laughs> like, you're all the state. Yeah. Like, why can't you do this? And I was like, I have literally no answer because I ask myself that same question. Yeah. <laughs> All the time. Would you say that sort of this realization of the lack of uh, continuity, I guess, throughout the, organi- uh, the various governmental like institutions? Collaboration. Yeah. Would you say that that has been the biggest surprise or the biggest challenge? Or have there been other things about this work that you're doing that has challenged you beyond just sort of the things that you aren't? fully capable of you don't have as much control over I would say that there's there's a whole lot that I very like I have very little to no control over um I think that there in terms of this sort of lack of connection or communication or um at times potentially cooperation between entities um there's also still like a lot of sort of coalition building and 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 sort of um cooperative sort of work being done i think um it does exist and when it works it works like i will say um for example there's this hate crime coalition here in chicago that's made up of a bunch of different folks like my office and the city department the fbi cpd community-based organizations um academics i mean it it's a broad-ranging coalition and the kind of ad- institutional systems level advocacy that that group does is the I, I hope it's not the exception to the rule right like I like mm. there is real stuff happening like there's this there's there's there are entities when there's a will to cooperate there are ways I think to make this better um, what's been surprising is, is that like there's so many I think issues where maybe there's not that will to cooperate yeah or it's just not enough of an issue for them for folks to put resources in to you know spend time to sort of think about yeah why is it kind of necessary for your units called the victims witness unit victim witness unit yes why is it necessary for your unit to um have you know to collaborate with you know, community organizations with government, other agencies and law enforcement, why do you need that sort of broader scope of connectivity in order to get your job done? Yeah, I will. So, well, on on the one hand, I'm probably one of the only, if not the only person in the unit that has this sort of both direct service and community-based role. Most folks are almost 100% direct service-based. Um, but the reality is that, like, we, we play a very specific part. Folks that we come into contact with need all kinds of things that we aren't able to give them. I can't, we don't have housing. We don't have long-term counseling. I wish I could give even, like, fixed-term counseling. Like, that would be, a dream would be to have, like, internal sort of, like, maybe, like, eight sessions would just be great because then you could warm hand off people and it would be awesome. And just probably wonderfully helpful for people that you work with. (laughs) Yeah, to have access to very, like, low barrier Mm -hmm. services. Yeah, as opposed to just kind of dropping them off and being like, okay, we're done. Keeping them able to talk about those things and, like, you know, for the next two months you have Mm -hmm. someone to come in and talk to. That's that's huge. That's how you work through it so you don't have a scarred human. (laughs) Well, and then, and then, but also with when you're getting someone who's like in crisis, giving them here's a list of ten people you can call. I mean, like that can be overwhelming, right? Like if someone is overwhelmed and in crisis, are they gonna be like, like, like able to make those phone calls and do that legwork, right? Like that's. Do you? Still, do you are you sure that that person you're referring to them them to is actually good and affirming and right like there's so 
So in terms of like building these partnerships, it's incredibly important because I'm not about to send somebody somewhere that I don't trust, mm-hmm. right? Like, like these are people, the folks that we work with have already experienced so much harm, not just necessarily like for the reason that they're interacting with us, but right. like maybe just in general, like especially when you're dealing with, um, well, all kinds of things, really. I yeah. mean, people have their own, come with their own history. Yeah, just um, their own sort of dealing with their own identity in society is hard enough and now they have this trauma they have to deal with right and a lot of the folks that we work with this isn't the first time that they've been a victim of something either right um or it might not be the first person that they love who's been murdered or it's not their only sort of it's not their only trauma Mm. um might be intergenerational trauma or stuff from childhood or wherever whatever um, so building partnerships with people that provide services that we can't, I think is like one of the most important things that needs to be done. Um, and I spend, especially the first year that I was in the, the job, spent a lot of my time setting up like one-on-ones and meetings and trying to figure out who was good and where were resources and what was affirming and, um, because if you don't, then you're, people fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And you're just kind of repeating this cycle. I mean, you're just going to just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And exactly. Uh, speaking of, you know, people falling through the cracks, uh, I can only assume that a fair amount of your funding probably comes from the state budget, state funding. So yeah, how have, <laughs> how has the lack of a budget for three years it impacted impacted you impacted the work that you do in your your unit your department because did you start you you started when we didn't have a budget or, or right around i got hired the week before the primary oh, oh. <laughs> so. but you still have a job <laughs> um so Like, shit costs money, man. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like my salary. (laughs) Oh, yeah, because you're a governmental employee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, like, I want to, like, pay my bills and, like, be compensated for my work, right? Yeah. It's also – and that's – and, like, just, like, real quick. um, (laughs) Like, before this, I worked for nonprofits. Mm. Um, Who, like – they don't have tons of money. No, money. they don't. <laughs> I work for a nonprofit now, and it's rough. It's hard out here. Oh, yeah. 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 And, like, All the what? work that's good for society, they're like, no, nah, we don't want to pay We're you for that. We're not going to pay for it. Right. But, like, damn it, like, it's like you fucking pay your artists. You should pay your fucking social service workers. Like, we all got to be compensated for the time that we put in. Exactly. Like, the emotional labor. Like, our actual labor. Mm-hmm. I mean, and especially for folks of color and for women and for queer folks and for, like, people that have historically been been sort of denied access to, like, properly compensated labor. Like... Yeah, the equity, the capital. Yeah. In any like, sense. Gotta pay me for my goddamn work. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, that costs money. Um, yeah, so not having a budget coupled with just, like, like, rising crime rates and, Mm. which, I don't know, also may have been maybe correlated to the lack of a budget. I don't know. To put into programs that would have maybe negated some of that crime. Like, I wonder if I'm not, like, if I'm not mistaken, like, our murder rate. And like our like our shooting rate, and like our budget, there's some kind of like correlation to the increase That's in so our murders, and like the lack of money we're putting into the yeah, communities I that mean, need it. Think about so so this year and last year. Last year was really bad. Um, it was yeah. Well, we didn't have a budget. That no. was that was the after the the year after a year of not having a budget. 
it was the real, you started to see the real effects of it. Right. So, like, wow. uh, when C4 got shut down because the state didn't pay its bills, and then Cook County became the large, Cook County Jail became, like, the largest sort of, like, mental health service provider in the county. Whoa. Um, which is still true today, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, like, CPS closed, like, this bunch 48 of school, schools. Right. Yeah. Like, this, all, all of this stuff is happening around the same time. It can't be a coincidence. I, I, I don't think it. I mean, what no. do I know? I'm a history major. Like, <laughs> human, I, Bachelor of Arts, what do I know? But, I mean, something seems a little fishy to me. No, yeah. Right? That's, yeah, that's an incredibly um, interesting way to think about it. I hadn't really thought about that correlation, yeah. but you're just, you're so right. The number of DV shelters that closed. The number of, um, like, community organizations that were unable to provide service. Um, after school programs, I mean, childcare, I mean, it ended up, Fern works in early childhood, sort of like education and childcare, and for a minute there, it was mathematically impossible to like make minimum wage and afford, and, and also then get like a subsidy for childcare for like a minute there, because. (laughs) So you don't have any money. Yeah, so, yeah. like, what? So you're going to leave your kids with whoever so you can make money to feed them or not leave. Right, so, like, it all gets it all gets tied together. It's all cyclical. Yeah, so, like, not having a budget. Um, and then also coupled with, I think, federal issues and, well, now county issues. Um it just means that you're doing, you're not doing anything to prevent stuff from happening. Like you're not, you're not putting money into the prevention. Um, all of those things that we know, actually, like help reduce, sort of like violence and issues and whatever. Um, money is getting cut, and then you're cutting money from the. So you're cutting money from like, the ins- Like I always say, it's like, there's. You, there's, you can either be the person that puts out fires or the person that, like, installs smoke detectors, right? We're cutting money from both now. Mm. So, like... And then we're saying, why? Where's the smoke coming from? Right. Yeah. And, oh, shit, I don't have enough, like... What's the... Like, the... Fire, fire extinguisher. Fire, thank you. Fire extinguishers to the put them out. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's... Yeah. Because, yeah. well, I don't know, maybe because we don't have batteries in any of our smoke detectors anymore. And then, because we don't have that, we didn't put money into the fire extinguishers, and now we're all just burning. And we want to know where, why, yeah. why, what happened. Well, what can the people who are listening today do to maybe get you some batteries, stand me some of that fire? Yeah. What, what can are there are there actions that you guys need done? Are there like, you know places they can put their voice, their body, their signatures, or is it you guys need fundraising? Um. I think, like, we need to demand accountability from our elected officials. Like, that's just, like, one. And, like, for lots of different reasons. Um, But that's a huge one. Um, I'm always really curious about where money actually goes. Um, Now, bear in mind, like, I'm Canadian. So I think that, like, paying taxes is a good thing when it results in good things, good things. Um, <laughs> a better society right like i don't like i i'm not i don't cheer on tax cuts um because like shit costs money yeah it has to come from somewhere but by that same token we need to know that our taxes our tax money is actually going to the right thing and that means that we have to demand accountability mm-hmm. so that's that is one big thing. Um, the other thing is, well, this is maybe more specific to, like, the hate violence. So th- there's been an increase, likely, in the past. We won't really know for sure for a while once until we have Oh, yeah. You mean statistics. in this new the presidential last six administration? Uh, <laughs> maybe? Has something changed drastically in our society? Is well, it just the chill in my bones? Well, fun fact, there was no statistically significant change from 2004 to 2015. 
Like, mm-hmm. we averaged about 250,000 hate incidents per year from 2004 to 2015 from, like, a, a, um, the Bureau of Justice Statistics report that came out June 2017, which you can also look up online um, for anyone who wants to check out numbers and just a cool report. Um, that's where kind of where our numbers stop. Like, we have 2016 numbers from the FBI, but that's only, like, law enforcement reported numbers. That's a whole other thing. But... Aren't those, like, more under-reported numbers? Yeah. yeah. So, actually, sort of in the studies or whatever, it's probably – hate crime is probably the most under-reported thing, like, uh, other than sexual violence. Hmm. Um, like, less than half of all hate incidents are actually reported to police. I could see that. It's a tricky thing to sort of – voice your uh, like voice and just say this happened to me and then also to be taken seriously yeah so exactly. it's both things i was gonna say and even like getting what we like know from, from the, the cbd yeah yeah oh my gosh yeah yeah so it's 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 uh, there's the barriers to reporting are lie on both sides of the equation i think pretty evenly mm-hmm. um but there yeah i think in the current sort of climate so for the way I conceive of it, like hate violence starts with like words and ends with physical, like like pretty horrific physical violence. Um, Are there like a common like common types of hate crimes you see that kind of happen, or have you seen a rise in any recently? There's definitely been, um, I think, an increase in a lot of like hate speech. So, like, words alone aren't a hate crime. If any to me, I just want to that, like, clear. Like, a hate crime means that there was, like, a, a crime that was a, a, something that was can be charged as a crime that was committed because of somebody's, whether race or gender, phys- sexual, or, sexual orientation, um, national origin. There's, like, a bunch of them. I could keep listing. But, um, but the hate speech part, is like that one end of the spectrum where I think we're seeing a huge rise. So, but but hate speech, I think once we normal normalize hate speech, right? You're normalizing like the the essentially the de- you're making it more acceptable to dehumanize the other. It's not that big a leap from that to violence. Once you normalize one, you're really quickly it's a slippery slope to the other. Right. So once it's normalized, like. It's, it's way easier to cause someone harm if you don't think that they're, like, a real human, right? Yeah. Um, people have First Amendment rights to free speech, 100%. That is a thing. But just because you have a right to say it doesn't mean that, like... You should. You should. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we should say it's acceptable, right? Like, someone's right to free speech, just to say hate speech, doesn't preclude folks from saying that's hate speech, right? Like we can still call it out. Um, so I think that's one place where folks can do more mm-hmm. if they want to do more. And there are some folks that do sort of like periodic bystander intervention, like trainings, trainings. We're hoping to have one at the Hate Crime Summit on October 25th um, at Plug UIC. It. Plug it in. <laughs> um, as well, because I think that – the majority of people, I think, know that it's wrong and think that it's wrong. I think the majority of those people don't know what to do. All my mind just running through time That is our episode with Angelica D'Souza. You can find our podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. But if you want more information about our guests and the work they're doing, please head to our Facebook page or website, showupchicago.org, and follow our Twitter Show up, Shypod. That is show up, C H I P O D. Big thank you, as always, goes out to the wonderful Copano for allowing us to feature her music, to Zipporah Jarman for the hookup with Angie, our producer Kyle McCleavy, and every one of you that strives to make the world a better place. Next week, we're going to be talking with Dr. Amara Enya, a public policy expert and former 2014 mayoral candidate, also general badass and ray of sunshine. We discuss her run for mayor, the biggest policy issues facing the city, and plausible economic solutions to fix the mess. As always, thank you so much for listening, and until next week, we hope you show up, Chicago. Oh, yes. Hoo-hoo. <laughs>